0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Blessed is our God at all times, but now and ever to the ages of ages. Amen. We recite the hymn in preparation for the Nativity. Today the Virgin is on her way to the cave where she will give birth to the eternal word of God in an ineffable manner. Rejoice, therefore, O universe, when you hear this news and glorify with the angels and the shepherds him who shall appear as a young child who is
0: also God from all eternity.
1: Please join me in welcoming Monsignor Stuart Swetland. We already prayed. Uh, I usually start my talks with prayer, but uh, for those of you in, uh, from the Low Country, of course, uh, Saint Nicholas feast is tomorrow, so put your shoes out uh, to get the uh, candy. If you don't know that tradition, it's a wonderful one. I'm from the Diocese of Peoria, and a lot of people from the Low Country—about 10% of our diocese Catholics were uh, originally uh, from the Low Country—where this is a big celebration. So, uh, uh, it's uh, of course, I love the tradition. There's many traditions about Saint Nicholas. You know, the the, the, the I'm sure most Catholics know the story of him throwing the bags of gold into the window to rescue the poor family who didn't have a dowry for their beautiful daughters, and of course, one tradition is the bag of gold fell into a stocking, that's how we get stockings at Christmas time. But the one I like best, and it may not be true, but it's one of those Catholic stories that may not be true, but ought to be, um, and if it's not true, well, I think it may be true, but if it's not true, it ought to be. Um, uh, Nicholas, of course, the uh, historical Nicholas, the bishop and uh, defender of faith, uh, was a uh, 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 participant in the Council of Nicaea. And it's said that he got so uh, uh, angry at the Arians denying the full divinity of Christ that he punched one of the Arian bishops, uh, right, knocked him right out. Uh, and uh, was, because you're not supposed to put hands on a bishop, got himself excommunicated for that and had to be restored uh, to, uh, to full functioning as, as a bishop and priest. But I like to think that the man who really is behind Santa Claus, and that's a fascinating story. You should have a talk someday on that, how we go from St. Nicholas to Santa Claus. Believe it or not, Coca-Cola had something to do with it. Um, but um, uh, the, um, uh, I like to think that the man that we celebrate is Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, uh, was so uh, pious for the faith that he was willing to enter into fisticuffs to defend it. Um, it makes uh, sort of the celebration a little bit more joyous. So good to be with you today in the Advent season. Uh, This is one of my favorite seasons, and I'm going to start, before I go to the Bible passages we're going to look at, to sort of set the tone, uh, I like to say, uh, give um, uh, some of the sources I use for my own reflection for this presentation. Most importantly for my own uh, preparation this Advent and for the uh, preparation of this talk is this wonderful book by Father Alfred Delp, uh, Priest and Martyr. He was a Jesuit priest in Germany who was famous for his Advent uh, missions. Um, He was an opponent of Nazism, which was not uh, uh, a good thing for him as far as keeping life in this life. Uh, As rector of St. George's Church in Munich, um, he uh, not only had the reputation for great Advent homilies and spiritual conferences, But he was accused of conspiring against uh, the Nazis. He was a leader in the resistance movement, so it was actually true that he was conspiring against the Nazis, as any (laughs) good person should have. Uh, He was arrested in 1944, tortured, imprisoned, and finally executed on February 2nd, the Feast of the Presentation. Um, uh, Pardon me, uh, yeah, February 2nd. The uh, Presentation of the Temple, yes, Presentation of the Temple. Um, It's also called Candlemas Day. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, February second, 1945, um, some of the reflections now translated for us in this work by Ignatius Press came uh, while he was in prison. So he did his last advent homilies from prison. All right, so I highly recommend this. I get no kickbacks for it, but it's just great. The other is the first volume of the multi-volume, the five-volume, uh, Dr. Pius Parsch. It's a famous... A uh, book on the liturgical year, the year of grace, as he called it. It's a five-volume work. You can find these in all kinds of second-hand bookstores. I don't think they're still in This is the uh, the first volume is from Advent to Candlemas. It's the old calendar, of course, because these are old publications. But uh, each season, and I'm giving away preachers' uh, uh, tricks. Each season, he does a wonderful job of introducing the spiritual undertones and liturgical overtones to uh, that season, and for years and years as a priest, I've used him as an aid to preaching and teaching on the liturgical seasons, okay? So those are the, uh, the references that helped me today. As far as um, starting with sacred scripture, I, I chose two passages, both of which are classical um, uh, Advent passages. Uh, the first I'm going to take is from uh, the, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, Romans 13, The moral section of Paul's letter to to the church in Rome. Uh, So Romans 13. um, Romans, uh, of course, comes right after the Acts of the Apostles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. As a little boy growing up a Protestant, of course, we memorize the order of books One thing that um, has always thrown me off is when I convert to Catholicism, I've never figured out where the extra books are inserted. (laughs) So um, some old habits die hard. But uh, thanks to, actually, you're here, so welcome, Mike. Uh, Thanks to you, I have one of the Holy Bibles from the Naval Academy from when you were a focus missionary there, and I forgot mine one day, and they let me keep it. But uh, the nice thing about the Naval Academy, this is one of the uh, RSVs that has the old, that has the Protestant version and the Catholic books separate. So I'm back to my old way of doing things when I use this one. Um, But Romans chapter 13, let's start at verse 11. My uh, uh, new... uh, Revised Standard starts this pericope with the headline, An Urgent Appeal. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first became believers. The night is far gone. The day is near. Let us lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of the Lord. The other passage is another classic Advent passage uh, from the Gospel this time, Luke, chapter 21. Um, The third of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 21, um, starting, uh, let's start at verse 25. Luke 21, starting at verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, the moon and the stars, and on the earth, distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place... Stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. The gospel of the Lord. Praise just love Catholics. They're just on there. Like I said, in my old days, it would have been Amen, brother. Um, <laughs> Advent is a time of great expectation. Advent is a time of great expectation. It is the season of joy, the joy of experiencing that God can be relied upon. That God's promises to us will be fulfilled as they were to the people of old who longed to see what we see, but did not see it. Who longed to hear what we hear, but did not hear it. Advent is a time of great expectation, the joy of experiencing that God can be relied upon. And He can, can He? We all know that. But Advent is a time when we are reminded of this wondrous truth. Father Delp, in his reflections, always reminded his parishioners and the many, many, many others who came to hear him preach during the Advent season that all of life is really an Advent that we're preparing to encounter the babe born in Bethlehem who is our Lord, our Savior, and our all. It is a journey, as Father Delp would put it, into the holy place of encounter, like those who came to encounter the newborn babe. But for this to happen, we must be, as Romans 13 said and Luke 21 said, we must be shaken awake. And Advent is a time to sort of wake up. In the darkness time of the year, we're told to wake from sleep. Why or how? To to wake to whom we are, who we are, and what we are called to be. To wake up to what we are capable of as beings created in the image and likeness of the God who loves us, the crucified and risen one. In other words, it's a time to prepare to better encounter Jesus Christ. The goal, and I'll say it right from the beginning, is that we all individually and communally will be closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on Christmas morn than we've ever been before. That when we celebrate the great Christmas Mass, either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, I'm chuckling to myself right now because I have to say I've always found in the Catholic Church one of the funniest questions frequently asked this time of year is, Father, what time's your midnight Mass? (laughs) But since the Holy Father now often celebrates midnight Mass earlier than midnight, it's a legitimate question. (laughs) But no matter if we celebrate... The Mass at early evening with every child on a sugar high screaming their lungs out. Or we celebrate those wonderful candlelit midnight Masses done as I think they should be at midnight. Or if we get up early, early Christmas morn and make our way to the church where the crowds will be a little less. But we can sing those hymns and go up and adore the crash, the Christ child present there as a reminder that he became one with us as Emmanuel, God with us. The goal for Advent is to get us to that moment and have us closer to the Lord than we've ever, ever, ever been before. And if we have done that, then we've had a successful Advent. It won't matter if the gifts are perfect or the cookies came out exactly like we want them to. It won't matter if we got all the Christmas cards mailed And you don't have what I have, that my Christmas cards are usually more like St. Patrick's Day cards. (laughs) It won't matter if the tree is just perfectly chosen so you didn't have to lop off the top or the bottom or didn't lean one side or the other. It won't matter if every light is still working brightly that you've put up. Well, all that is nice and all that is important and all that can help you in this season to prepare well to celebrate more about that in a moment, none of that matters as compared to what Advent is about. Preparing our hearts and minds to receive the Lord ever anew. Make sense? All right, so that's the big picture, right? We already got the big picture. You can probably say it's time to go and eat the cookies. Um, But, I, you know, they. let's get into some of the minutiae. The church, as you probably heard me say before, loves to group things in threes. Everyone knows that about the church? It's very biblical, and it's obviously very Trinitarian. Augustine loved it, and not just in the, in the West did they love it, they loved it in the East as well. The church likes to group things in threes. Like, for example, the Christmas season. We in the, uh, in the West have a tendency to call it the Christmas season, but if we were liturgically focused we would really call it the season of epiphany. Because Christmas season is a season. It doesn't end on the 25th just because the shopping ends and therefore the uh, the decorations start to be put up in the shopping malls. Christmas begins with the Christmas Eve celebration and goes through, just I'll quiz you, what's the last day of the season of Christmas? Baptism of the Lord. Very good. Which seems very un to many people because it's his public ministry. It has nothing to do with Jesus as a child. Because in fact, what the season of Christmas is, is a season where we celebrate three epiphanies of our Lord. What's an epiphany? An epiphany is something that is hidden, is made manifest. Something that is concealed becomes visible. You know, we may talk about someone, you know, we're, we're trying to do finances. Some people find finances to be a mystery, right? And they have some kind of epiphany that they finally see through the finances quite clearly. Usually that epiphany means, probably I should hire someone to do this. <laughs> but we have that moment where hidden wisdom becomes known to us. The term epiphany has that understanding that something that's hidden is made manifest, is made visible, made known. So the Christmas season is a season where we celebrate three epiphanies of the Lord. The first epiphany is Christmas Day. When the newborn babe is announced by the angels to the Anawim of Israel, the remnant of Israel, the little ones, the poor ones, the marginalized ones like Mary and Joseph. And the shepherds who come to worship the newborn babe, the ones who are keeping watch at night. I've had the great honor of saying mass in those caves not far from Bethlehem uh, where the shepherds by tradition were keeping their watch at night. And I have to tell that the last time I did it, uh, it's a tender moment for me because it was the last trip I had with my mom before she passed and it was great that it was to the Holy Land. But... Uh, she had unfortunately had a, a pickpocket in Paris at the airport so she lost her passport and I had to stay behind to get her a new passport, it was a, it was a mess, and we, had to fl- and we finally flew from Paris to Hoyland, but it, by that time we were flying overnight so we had been not only the normal lack of sleep for transatlantic uh, uh, sleep but we had been up a whole extra uh, half, half day by being up that whole night. Well when I got to uh, L'Hoyland the first mass we were celebrating and I was leading a whole pilgrimage was in the shepherd's cave. And so I got literally to the place driven by the taxi just in time to celebrate Mass. You know how the Mass is in the Holy Land. Boom, boom, boom. You don't have a whole lot of extra time. So boom, right on. And I just, as I took that moment after the first reading and we had done the responsorial psalm, I had sat down for the first time and I had put my head back against the cool of the cave. And just for a moment, I must have dozed off. <laughs> and then the choir intoned the Alleluia. And like you know, every priest, the Alleluia immediately brings the response of spring up. I sprung up, forgetting I was in a cave. <laughs> So I had the experience of what it must have been like for the shepherds when those angels began to sing outside a lump on the head and I saw more stars than just what is in the sky. (laughs) The first epiphany of the Christmas season is to the Anuim of Israel who saw that what had been prophesied in the prophets of old centuries and centuries and centuries before had come true. The virgin shall conceive and be with a child. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. Wonder counselor, prince of peace. Think of all the things that were going through their heads as pious members of the remnant of Israel as they saw the newborn babe. The second epiphany in the Christmas season, of course, is the Feast of Epiphany, where this mystery is made known to some of the Gentiles as a foreshadowing to the universal mission of the gospel going to all the world. And of course, it would be the more appropriate day for us to actually exchange gifts, like they do in the East, because they're always really smart. Get the Christmas discounts, give your gifts on the Epiphany. (laughs) Now, this feast is one well worth celebrating more than we do. But it is the center of Christmas season. The third epiphany, as you rightly said, was the epiphany that we celebrate as the baptism of the Lord when Jesus begins his public ministry and his mystery is made available to all. Yes, he's preaching to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but he's going to form his disciples to be the evangelists who begin to take the gospel to, from Jerusalem to Samaria to all the earth. Now, Christmas is a season, therefore, all three epiphanies. Typical season three. All right? Um, even in the Lent Easter season, there's this idea of three. The passion, death, and resurrection. All right? Or if you want, think of John's three times using that technical term of being lifted up. Christ is lifted up on the cross. Behold the Savior of the world. All right. He's lifted up in the resurrection, and he's lifted up in the ascension. So again and again and again, we can find these, these threes in our liturgical and theological tradition. The season of Advent is no different. It's structured to focus on three Advents, if you will, of Christ. Three, coming of the Lord to us. The beginning of Advent focuses on what we call in English the second coming. The coming of Christ at the end of time to end time, escorted by all the angels and saints, right to usher in, in its finality and its completion, the kingdom we all long and yearn for. So the prayer of the church in this time when we are focusing on the second coming is, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And I would love him to come before after grade finals. <laughs> that's what we long for, that's what we yearn for. And so this first part of Advent really continues the end of the liturgical year that we finish with Christ the King by emphasizing the fact of what we called in the days of old and still should call the four last things. All right? Where is death, there is judgment, there is heaven, there is hell. And the readings are focused on that. We just heard that in the Luke reading about Christ coming at the end of time to usher in the definitive kingdom. And every Christian yearns for that. Um, one of the, Actually, the very first time I went to the Holy Land, I was a, I was a naval officer, but I, I wasn't officially traveling as a naval officer. I was going to school at Oxford. So I kept my identity sort of secret so I could go places that I couldn't go if I was a naval officer, like the Golan Heights. And uh, I really... Um, Disputed territory was someplace that they didn't want American military people to be. So uh, I went as a British student and uh, took a tour to the Golan Heights. And the Jewish bus driver who was taking me up there was, uh, I think, a fairly pious Jew, but he also uh, loved to engage Christians. And he asked if I was a Christian. And at that time, I was studying to become Catholic and said I would already reconverted to Christ. And so I said yes. And, and then we started a dialogue. He said, you know, it's about halfway up Golan Heights, he said, you guys are longing and yearning for the coming of the Messiah again, right? I think he even knew the term. I think you guys call it the second coming. And I said, yeah, that's right, we are. He says, well, we Jews, too, are awaiting the Messiah. I think we should get along well because we don't have to worry. When he comes, we can ask him, have you been here before? (laughs) The... The first part of the Advent season focuses on the second coming of Christ. that We long for, and we realize it's out there in the future. We know not the hour. We know not the day. So the fundamental moral truth that flows from this longing is be prepared. Be ready. Be alert. You know not the hour of the day. The second... Plane, if you will, this is how Dr. Pius Pausch calls it, he calls these planes, Uh, uh, is the plane that sort of, we have this moving moment, It, uh, it definitely hinges on December 17th, I'll talk about that in a moment, but this movement when we turn from focusing on the second coming of Christ, to look back at the historical coming of Christ, the coming of Christ into history, when he breaks in, what Paul calls that, the fullness of time, when he breaks in to our history, in quite a surprising way, really. You know, who would have thunk it, that this is the way the Messiah was going to come? Remember the problem that the chosen people had was it just didn't stack up in some of their minds. The utter gratuity that God would take on our humanity in such a way that he was willing to become an embryo. Willing to become a fetus. Willing to become a newborn, a toddler, a child, a teenager, a man. Think of that. It just boggles the mind that the Redeemer, the Savior, the Creator of, you know, everything was created through Him, all was created for Him, before He was before else that is, became helpless, vulnerable. There's nothing more vulnerable than life in the womb, as we know all too well in our society. Nothing more vulnerable than a newborn baby. Yet our God was willing to become vulnerable. It's a perfection of God. Vulnerability, mess. He became vulnerable to teach us how to live and how to love. That's how much he loves us. And we look back at the events that we celebrate And that's the second part of Advent begins that focus, or has that focus, which carries into, of course, our Christmas season. So there's two planes, if you will, or two Advents of of Christ, two comings of Christ. The one in history, and the one at the end of history. The third is the coming of Christ in grace, here and now, in this present moment. That Christ is coming to us, not just he came in the past and he'll come in the future, but he is present with us now as Emmanuel, God with us. The one who said, I will be with you until the end of time. And we open our heart and we open our mind to his presence in our midst. Two or three are gathered in his name, he is present. He is mysteriously present here. He's mysteriously present in that supreme way of the Holy Eucharist. So these are the three planes, if you will, the historical plane, the plane of grace, the eschatological plane, and each of them, in a way, is aided by certain figures or certain symbols or certain uh, ideas. This is clearly seen in the historical plane where Advent gives us certain, I like to say, um, um... symbols of faith, the prophets, especially Isaiah. It's almost like the church in, in her liturgy during Advent says, okay, Isaiah, it's like a, a kid's Christmas pageant. It's time for you to come on and proclaim. Right? And some of the other figures the church gives us, besides the prophets, especially Isaiah, is uh, John the Baptist. And finally, towards the end of Advent, Mary and Joseph. Right? So it's a, a, And it's not just Mary and Joseph too, you could add the angel. You know, and their role in both Annunciation and, uh, to Mary and the proclamation of birth. So we'll get to that in a moment. But I, I want to make a, a little uh, aside about these, this three, these three planes because I think it's important that we recognize that while this is particularly a focus of Advent, it's actually liturgically a focus of every liturgical celebration. We used to say, as one of our memorial faiths, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. You see the threefold. Christ has died. That's the historical plane. Christ is risen. He lives. Right? That's the plane of grace. Christ will come again. That's the eschatological plane. Right? Or when we do the priest or the deacon does the um, confidior, if he does it correctly, he should recognize those three planes and the, the um, words we use should reflect that. Like, um, um, let's see if I can do one from memory um, Lord Jesus you came to show us the way to the Father see you came past tense to show us the way to the Father okay. Christ Jesus you give us the consolation of the truth here and now okay. Lord Jesus you are the good shepherd leading us to everlasting life Lord have mercy see the threefold strobes of the penitential rite, have that structure of history, present, eschatological future. And every celebration of the Mass is a remembering of past events. He took bread, said the blessing, broke the bread. We're recalling and we are remembering these realities. But he comes to us here and now, present, present, in the Eucharistic sacrifice. We make present Calvary again so that we can participate by offering ourselves in union with what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's made present to us because Christ's choice continues through space and time and is always present to us. We can, if you will, tap into it and be part of it, participate in it, make it our own. Right? But when we receive the Eucharist, the tradition of the church is it's also A foretaste of heavenly bliss. Of union with our Lord and Savior. What makes heaven heavenly is that we're united with the one we love with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our spirit, forever and ever. And the Eucharist is a foretaste of that perfect union. So every celebration, right? It's true of baptism, right? We remember That Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan. Not because he needed to be saved by the sacrament of baptism, but he came to be baptized to make all baptismal water holy. So much so, you know, the tradition is if you're using water from the Jordan, you don't bless it. It's already been blessed. We remember that. We make it present for the baby or adult that's being baptized And they enter into the saving mystery of becoming a son or daughter in the Son. Truly transformed and adopted into the divine human family, which is the family of God. But baptism is an entry into God's eschatological communion of the church, which is a pilgrim church. This is one thing that Pope Francis is emphasizing, and it's a good thing for us to remember. We're just passing through. Right? This is not our final home right? He, he's for a little creative destruction, right? The idea that, you know, hey, things change. Cardinal Newman understood that. To be alive, he said, is, is to change. To be perfectly alive is to change often, right? You know, we can't just be static. God is not that way. It's, the demonism of God is leaving to the eschatological kingdom. The Second Vatican Council said, the kingdom is here present with us in seed or embryo, growing, sometimes indistinguishably, in our midst. It's not completed. We live in that time that the kingdom's already begun in Christ, but it's not yet brought to its fulfillment. Does that make sense, all this? Okay? So it's important, and Advent sort of reminds us, and if you want to read a saint on this, St. Bernard was really good on this you know, threefold structure of, of uh, Advent as far as the way grace comes to us. All right. I already stated that the goal of Advent is preparation. Um, uh, one thing we have to guard against is uh, what our, our secular society, and, the, and at least on this, our secular society is a bigger help than normal. You know, Christmas decorations are wonderful. You know, I love it. Now they do it too early, but at least they do it. right? And I don't, you know, I don't, you know, I don't get into these, you know, what I call the Christmas wars about happy holiday. I say wonderful, happy holiday. That's happy holy day. That's where the term holiday came from. And so happy holiday is Merry Christmas. They're saying the same thing. They just don't know it, you know. (laughs) So I guess we'd be quiet about that or ACLU would be after me. But, um, you know, and I always like to say that people say happy holiday are recognizing that we have epiphany and, you know, baptism of the Lord and all that. So. There's other holy days during the season, right? What we have to guard against, though, because our secular society has this sentimental view of Christmas, that what Dr. Posh calls uh, our preparation ought not to be a sentimental preview of Christmas. You know, Hallmark card sentimentality with no depth and substance, you know. We have to guard against that, that idea like Christianity is about being nice. I think I said this last time I was with you. Many things you can say about Jesus, one term you can't use for him is nice. They don't crucify nice guys. You know, a guy who makes a court a whip and drives out the money changers, who calls the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and the Sadducees a brood of vipers, hypocrites, not a nice guy. He was a kind man, always kind and merciful, but he was not nice. But there is a, 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 a very big danger, a sentimental danger, to turn kindness into niceness. The difference is, for example, nice people don't tell their alcohol-addicted uncle that he's a drunk and he needs help. Uh, nice people just enable that kind of uh, destructive behavior. Kind people say, hey, you son of a gun, we love you too much. You know, we love you just the way you are, but we love you too much for you to stay the way you are. That's a line I stole from Curtis Martin of Focus. <laughs> right? It's a good way of talking about God. God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much for, we do, for us to stay the way we are. He wants us to become more. You know, as Benedict Sixteenth used to put it, you know, we are made for greatness. You know? The world offers us comfort. We weren't made for comfort. We were made for greatness. The danger in Christmas season is the sentimentality of Comfort. Comfort foods, come for occasions, and not to take seriously the spiritual preparation necessary. Every year, we should long for and prepare for his coming again in grace into our lives. So practically, what does this mean? All Christians in this time of year should seek out sacramental reconciliation. Many parishes make it more readily available, which is an uh, aid to us. If they don't, give your priest grief about not having more times for sacramental reconciliation. Invite friends and family to go to confession with you. Right? It's always fun conversations, actually. Right? Right? Invite your neighbors who might be a little you know, estranged for the church to say, wonderful things happening at church now. They're going to forgive our sins. <laughs> Just wonderful. And they don't charge a bit for it. Not, they're not even taking up a collection. Right? Great thing to do. Great thing to do. Sacramental reconciliation. Second, take advantage of the fact that secular society demands have a lot of opportunity to grow in holiness. Like when you're sending a Christmas card, each card you send is a prayer. And make it that way. You know, as you address it or write your little note in it or put your little pictures of the kids or grandkids in it, say a prayer for that person. or that family. Or that business contact. Same thing when you're buying a gift. Don't say what do they want. Say what would God want them to have this Christmas, right? and make that prayer, that experience of shopping prayerful. Now, I go. One thing I always pray for when I go to Tyson's Corners is a parking spot. <laughs> um, Saint Therese is a great uh, intercessor for parking spots. Um, but make it prayerful to enjoy the fact that we have the, the tinsel and the lights and the, and the decorations and the, the, the Christmas music. It's early, yeah, I wish they'd wait, but they don't get that. That's okay. I can still enjoy it early. But don't slide into that comfortable comfortable sentimentality that doesn't challenge us to wake up, to be ready, to be alert, to be watchful. Okay? We're still in the first part, of uh, advent and during this part as i said we're focusing on the second coming and one of the things that's very important at least i'm a moral theologian by trade so it's important for me uh, because it's very important in the moral life to say that for us the and when we're thinking about the second part of uh, the second coming of christ one of the things we we should do is it's very important to begin with the end in mind right that we begin with the end in mind. Right? One thing about human life, one thing about the pilgrim church is that it's teleological, it's got a telos, it's got an end. Right? It's got a purpose. Right? One of the things that our society has decided is things don't have purposes. Have you noticed that? This is when we lost the marriage argument. Not when we voted, not when we we lost it when we quit emphasizing that. Human sexuality has a telos, has an end, has a purpose, that marriage isn't just whatever we want it to be, but there actually is something in reality called marriage that has purpose and meaning, and that we aren't not to bend reality to conform to our desires, but we are to conform our desires to reality, right? We lost that philosophical mindset. It's very hard to recover it. So now everybody thinks anything can be whatever I want it. So I can use my sexual powers, ever I want to, and I can make them mean what I mean, want them to mean, even though in reality they, they can't mean that. You see, that's what's going on. There's no purpose, there's no meaning, right? And since so there's no purpose and meaning, it's just whatever I choose it to be, right? That's the reality we're up against. So it's very important for us that we begin with the end in sight and the end is heaven. The kingdom. Union with God. And all other things in God. So the the first part of Advent reminds us, it's the beginning of a new liturgical year, it reminds us to think of beginning with the end in sight. And so, we recognize what we were made for. Now, Nobody in this room is old enough to remember the old Baltimore Catechism. Um, You're supposed to take that and run with it, but but what did the Baltimore Catechism say? The end was for you know who made me? God made me. Why did God make me? Not bad. I'm in finals mode, so B minus, but. to know, love, and serve Him in this life. And to be happy with Him in the next. Right? That, very, yeah. <laughs> Give that woman a holy card. Uh, that's, the, that's the end of it all. That's the purpose. That's what we were made for. And it begins now, but it finds its fulfillment in heaven. We got to start with the end in sight. And that's why... The Lord tells us seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added unto you. If our lives and our hearts and our minds and our lives are orientated towards the kingdom, everything is going to fall into place. We know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8:28. Right? If we're keeping the end in sight, right? We're following God's will in our lives and we're loving him with all our heart, mind and soul, right? We're doing that because we see the end. We want to be with God forever. And that's why we know love and serve him. That's why we know love and serve him now cuz it's a foretaste of what we'll do for all eternity. Trial understood that. She says she's going to spend her eternity working to bring other souls to heaven. You know? That's why I personally don't like the uh, use of the term eternal rest. Cuz I don't think heaven will be rest. Right? My reading of Revelation is it doesn't look restful. That's good. I, I, as you might notice, I'm kind of high energy. I don't think eternal rest is very, uh, is very encouraging. Okay? But it's, at, at, uh, it's so, uh, I could go on and on about the end time, but you get my point. Somewhere in the middle of Lent, and, and it takes different moments and different ways. This year, it's pretty early. We get a movement towards focusing on the first coming of Christ in history. And the bridge character for us in this transition is almost always John the Baptizer. And it's a wonderful season to think about his particular role in salvation history. You can say he's the last of the Old Testament prophets or the first of the New Testament martyrs. Uh, Normally the church says that Stephen is the first martyr. So I like to think of him as the last of the prophets um, and the beginning of the New. Um, He is the forerunner to Jesus both in the womb and in his role of pointing out the presence of Christ. And he is the man of great spiritual insight. He must increase, I must decrease. Part of our Advent spirituality is to try to live that throughout the new liturgical year. He, Christ, must increase, I must decrease. One of the things that, uh, when I work with my seminarians, uh, who are my spiritual directees, one of the things I I, I find uh, most important for them is um, the biggest distraction in prayer. Thomas Merton says the biggest distraction in prayer is our own agendas. Right? We don't pray. Now, yes, the Lord wants us to bring our concerns to him. He says, asking you receive, seeking you shall find, knocking and will shall be opened. So we bring our petitions everything. But we go to pray not so much to tell God our agenda. He knows it, actually, before we get there anyhow. We pray to put ourselves on his agenda, to think with the mind of Christ, to love with his heart. Right? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning in my life as it is in heaven. And John the Baptist has that insight when he says, "He must increase; I must decrease." Right? All right, I could go on and on, but he uh, yeah, he plays that transition, and we'll have him uh, the focus on John the Baptist for both the second and third Sunday in Advents this year, uh, in the way the readings fall. Always by the fourth Sunday, sometimes even as early as the third, we start to hear the historical texts about the Christmas season. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. Advent week four, right? And uh, of course there, Mary and Joseph and uh, the angel of Annunciation uh, is involved and these are characters that we uh, revel in and reflect upon. And it's not surprising that in the midst of the Advent season, especially important to people in the Americas, is the celebration of the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. The apparition of Our Lady pregnant with our Lord to the Anoim like Juan Diego, Saint Juan Diego now, on December 9th and December 12th. So along with Nicholas, who we love, of course, Saint Francis Xavier, we just celebrated, we have people like Juan Diego, Our Lady of Guadalupe, other great saints too, John the Cross, Ambrose, Lucy, etc. But we have this wonderful, wonderful third Sunday of Advent when I get to wear rose. (laughs) Do not tell me it's pink. By definition, even if it's the pinkest rose you ever saw, it's rose. What is that Sunday called that is the third Sunday of Advent? Latare, La-tare Sunday. Right? Gaudete? Latare, I'm sorry. I, I, Latare is not Lent. What am I thinking? I'm, I've got to look at my own notes here. Sorry about that. Uh, Gaudete Sunday, sorry. I, but I, the reason I'm saying it, I want to talk about the three times... The church particularly talks about joy. Gaudete, L'Arterre, and Jubilatio, the Easter season. Another example of threes. Gaudete Sunday, we celebrate the joy under the aspect of anticipation. You know, God saved me, St. Teresa used to say, from joyless saints, St. Saint Teresa of Avila. You know, the kind that wear their faith as if it's the most burdensome thing in the world. You know, those miserable Christians. I love it. The Pope used the term sourpusses for them. I had no idea how they're going to render that in Latin. But um, um, that, uh, that, that sense that, we, that Christianity is a burden. No, it should bring great joy. And so the church during the liturgical year celebrates joy under various aspects. Gaudete uh, Sunday is the joy of anticipation. It's like the joy of the little kids waiting for those gifts to be opened, counting the days off on their little advent calendars. We all should have that kind of anticipation for the coming of the Lord at the end of time and in a more profound way into our lives and hearts. And it should be joyous. Isn't it joyful to think? You know, I, being in the military for, for 10 years, you know, I was lucky every Christmas I made it home, even though sometimes it meant coming in right on Christmas day. It was always such a great enjoyment to anticipate being home for Christmas. And uh, I remember the one time I came fl- flying in from North Africa. And uh, I had this terrible camel skin thing on. I don't know what I was thinking. And my, the first thing my parents made me do is say, that thing stinks. You stink. Get in the shower. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but it was great to be home. So the anticipation of union with your family and friends of union with God, of union with one another. The second time we celebrate joy in a particular way in our liturgical calendar is in the middle of Lent, Loterious Sunday. That moment when we break a little bit the rigors of the fasting season of Lent. That's the joy of recess. A, a, a slight, re, um, you know, like an oasis in the desert. You know, just a slight break from the arduous journey to be renewed, refreshed, to see a little flowers, you know, and to move on. So it's that joy of, of a short break in the midst of an arduous and difficult journey. And the last and most important time we celebrate in a particular way, joy in the, in the church's liturgical calendar, is jubilatio, the jubilation of the Easter season, which goes the whole 50 days of Easter. And notice it's 50 days for Easter because we always party more than we fast. Because Catholics are party people. (laughs) You know. Okay. Um, I need to bring this uh, to a conclusion. There's so much more I'd like to say. Uh, But um, uh, I want to end with some thoughts from Father uh, Delp. um, And from uh, Thomas Aquinas. Um. In this period of preparation, there are certain things, Father Delp says, that we discover about ourselves and about God. He says we first find, if we are reflective, the fragility, the powerlessness, the futility of human life in reference to its ultimate meaning. He wrote that from prison, not long before his death. He said, when you look at it, I'm paraphrasing, when you look at it, we are very fragile. We are very powerless. And yet even the best of human efforts without God are utterly futile vis-a-vis our ultimate end. In other words, we discover we need salvation. We need God. But the second finding, Father Delp says, as he's being tortured in the Gestapo's chambers before they execute him, is that God is on our side. God is pro nobis for us. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. And he is God for us. I don't know if I was in a Gestapo prison, if I could have written that second statement. God is on our side. Remember, uh, February 2, 1944, it's not clear that Hitler's going to be defeated. The Battle of the Bulge, he broken through. You know, If some things had gone a little south, it might have been a long stalemate. Delp's attempts. With others to lead a resistance had entered, ended in utter futility. And most of them were round the ones that weren't killed immediately were round up and soon to be killed, like one of the, his confreres, Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran. So, you know, that's the reality. And he can say that the second thing we discover, after we reflect upon the futility, it seems, of our own efforts, is that God is on our side. And this leader should lead, he thinks to a profound commitment in faith. To entrust yourself to the God who's on your side. Faith, he said, is a real encounter with the presence of God. And it's a real challenge. A challenge to shake things up, beginning with ourselves. Didn't Pope Francis say that in his, his uh, apostolic exhortation? We need to shake things up. Right? Boy, he's shaking things up. <laughs> I've often meditated on what it must be like to be his security detail. <laughs> Tough job, that one. It's, faith is a real encounter with the presence of God, a real challenge to shake things up and to abandon ourselves to the divine, he said, now I'm quoting, unpredictability. The divine unpredictability. Who would have thunk it? He came as a little child to an obscure couple in a questionable marriage status, under a conquered, as a con- part of a conquered people, under a despotic, you know, an arbitrary ruling class. I could go on and on. That's how he chose to become one with us. Now, his sign, if you will, but the thing he says that in many ways sums up Advent. Remember, he's German. Is the Advent wreath. Which actually was a Protestant thing that became Catholic. If I read my history right. But don't quote me on that. I'm not an expert. But that's how I read it. But for him, it wasn't the wreath so much as it was the candles in the wreath. He says, candles give light but only by offering their very selves, their own substance. And we are called to be, in imitation of Christ, a light of the world in the darkest, darkest time of the year. In the northern hemisphere, in the coldest, coldest time of the year, we are to be lights unto the nation, in imitation of Christ. To be a candle that lights up the world, but only by offering its very self, or in our case, our very selves. He said, The world is freezing to death from loneliness, from a deadened heart, or from deadened hearts, plural, from despair flowing from helplessness. Someone is needed to live life, as he puts it, in its proper form. That's a great phrase. To live life in its proper form in accordance with its telos, its end. And he said, ultimately, you can sum up the proper form in a verb. We were made to adore, or to come. Let us adore him. Or as St. Thomas put it, in the first part of the second part, question 31, article 1, to be precise. A well-being of the Spirit in response to what exists is joy. That's his definition. A well-being of the Spirit in response to what exists. We were made for joy. We were made to adore. We were made for greatness. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. Thank you. I just, you know, last night when I was writing down my notes, I just realized I put largary in my note. I wonder why did I do that? Because I know it's got a date. You know why? The Nagmikov cop makes the mistake on the front page. Just, I just noticed that. I said, "How did I do that?" I was copying these things down. I realized because I looked at the Magnificat to make sure I got all the saints and it says Latari for third Sunday of Advent. So I apologize for that. And so I just made the same mistake they had made. It's easy to make, uh, but it's obviously from the first word of the, of the entrance that I found, "Gaudete" for the rejoice. So, uh, but it is, it is interesting, isn't it, that in, in Latin you have the different words for rejoice. Rejoice as anticipation, rejoice as that respite, and rejoice as celebration. What's jubilatio? It's, it's completed. The battle's over, the victory's won. The joy of completion, finishing an arduous uh, task, the joy of the resurrection.
0: Since Advent is a season of preparation, yeah. is there a notion of fasting in the West?
1: Yeah, there. well, it, there is. It's unfortunately fallen out. I, I um, My sister married into a Polish family, and they have some interesting traditions of us, even in some, um, they don't have the black fast like they have during Lent, but they have some serious fasting as far as not having meat, so Christmas Eve celebrations in Polish families are always with uh, fish, uh, and the uh, shared wafer uh, that they do, yeah, what is that, tell me, someone, thank you, and uh, that's part of their tradition, so yes, there are some fasting, but the season of Advent is not to be as rigorous in its penitential nature as the season of Lent, but we wear purple for a reason. We don't do the Gloria for a reason. To remind, it is a penitential in the sense of preparation. So there are some of that, yes. Yeah. I, I usually tell people that we have made Advent season so busy with everything that we've got our own penance already. We don't usually have to go <laughs> looking for it, uh, but that's, that's a good thing, yes. Thank you, Monsignor. Yeah. When will the Latin Rite Church Restore Epiphany back to January 6, so that us Westerners don't have to frantically search for an Eastern Rite church oh, in some areas. I know it's always now moved to the Sunday. It's it's or almost always the Sunday uh, after the octave of, of uh, Christmas has finished. Well, one feast day that I didn't mention at all in the Christmas season is Holy Family, uh, but that is a secondary feast compared to the other. We put that you know as the Sunday between New Year's and I mean, between Christmas and New Year's. But uh, the solemnity of, you know, Our Lady, of course, on January 1st. But the, um, uh, I would like, other, don't get me started. On this, I would really like Ascension Thursday to be Thursday again. Uh, you know, it just, it, you know, I kind of, like I said, what time's your midnight mass? I sort of like it at midnight. Um, you know, I, uh, I understand. We you know there's sometimes we need to move feasts, like when the feast of Joseph, the solemnity of Joseph, falls in the middle of Holy Week, to move it to the next available day, which can be several weeks away. But that makes sense. Or, or. Same thing with an assumption like we did I mean an annunciation like we did this year, that has to happen sometimes, but it 'd be nice on a regular basis for our holy days. What I wish our bishops would do is just pick a group of holy days that we 're all going to celebrate every every diocese, and they 're going to be on the day, no matter where they are we 're going to celebrate them and you know to make them kind of big and, and, and for Catholics to start taking them as real holy days, holidays. Uh, take off work, take off, you know, we need our, like December 8th, Patronal Feast Day, which this year falls on a Sunday, so we celebrate the 9th. You know, I'd never have understood why Catholics, it is our Patronal Feast Day as a nation, I don't understand why we don't make it a real celebration. But we don't. And, you know, our Jewish brothers and sisters are pretty good about this. You know, um, uh, they take Yom Kippur whenever it falls and they take it and they take off work. And uh, that's a good thing. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, it's the same thing. I, I think it's, 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 it would be good for culture if we establish days that we, com- we celebrate as holidays, but don't hold your breath for that. For many, hmm? Christmas is a, a sad season, a blue season, a depressing season. Um, so in that context, I was struck by your mm-hmm. comments on secular sentimentalism. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, comments? Well, uh, let's, let's play with that a little bit. Why would you say that it's a blue season for lots of people? You're right, the psychologists and, and, and social scientists tell us this, because they lost a loved one, and it reminds them of that. You see, what, what's lacking there for our society, when you become a consumeristic, materialistic society, what's lost is hope, right? And once hope is lost, then the, ultimate, the opposite of hope is despair, right? And uh, the last thing in the world Christmas is, is a season of despair, But if you've lost hope, it's a sad reminder that you have when people are celebrating the hope of the newborn babe. That's what's going on. So what we have to do is we live joyfully. We show the peace and joy of the gospel. We become the leaven in the society that's going to shake things up and help the whole mess rise. We begin to give witness to the hope that is within us. And the people who are tempted to be despair during Christmas are many, And our obligations is to try to show them there's something beyond their grief. Thank you very much, Monsignor. I I want to mention one thing, because I left it out. I always look at my notes to see, what did I forget? One thing I forgot, and I would really be angry with myself if I didn't mention it to you, at least now, are the O antiphons, starting December 17th, okay? December 17th is definitely a transitional day in daily Mass, where we move towards running right up to Christmas, and we begin... The antiphons for the Alleluia, which are the antiphons that priests and religious and lady who pray the office pray on evening prayer, all begin with O. Mm-hmm. The very first one is O sapientia, O wisdom. Right? And that's where the song O come, O come, Emmanuel comes from. All the verses are basically the O antiphons put together. Okay, So from December 17th until uh, Christmas Eve, each day is a different O antiphon. I love that tradition. I love praying and and meditating on the O-Antiphon starting December 17th. And for me, that's usually the moment I can click in to really preparing, because as an academic, that's when grades are usually in, and I can actually do that. So if you haven't had a good Advent up until then, you know, circle the 17th. Interestingly enough, the church that day in daily Mass gives us the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, which a lot of people hate because it's the, you know, it's the lineage of our Lord you know, which has all the names that no one can pronounce, Um, and of course, uh, you know, all you have to say is you pronounce them uh, very confidently, and everyone assumes that that's the way it's pronounced, Um, you know, you know, it's just, uh, you know, but when you get, you know, Abraham became the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah became the father of Perez, and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Am- Amidab, Amidab became the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, etc. If you look at this passage, five times it gets interrupted by the names of women or reference to women, which is quite unlike Jewish uh, tradition at the time. If you ever want to have some fun, and you probably do this in your studies, right? Go back to those women, right? I already mentioned one of them, Tamar. Genesis 38. Quite an interesting story. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, Then uh, we get uh, here, how about Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. We get red light districts from Rahab. Um, Boaz became the father of Obed. Obed, Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She threw her lot in. Now, there's three right off the deck. These are in Jesus' family tree, which I like to say he had some skeletons in the closet, right? <laughs> right? These realities, it shows how God writes straight with crooked lines <laughs> through this kind of history. Right? Tamar, you know, you know the story how she played the prostitute uh, to be impregnated by her own father in law so that she could give birth to the lot, you know? Um, and, you know, Rahab, who was the prostitute who hid the spies. Uh, Ruth, who was a foreigner, wasn't Jewish, right? So in Jesus, and of course, it goes on, Bathsheba is referred to, and then, of course, Our Lady. So, you know, all of this period at the end of, of, of Advent is a wonderful time. So don't miss the O of what the church is doing then, too. Enough.
0: You've heard me enough. Thank you very much, Monsignor. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.